0: but here's my Latin phrase for this morning, um, civilitas success barbaruin. Do you know that was supposed to be Wisconsin's uh, motto? Do you guys know that? And the motto was civilization succeeds barbarism. That was supposed to be Wisconsin's motto. Actually, in 1849, uh, John Winthrop was the first uh, chancellor of the University of Wisconsin uh, was given the task of coming up with a state motto uh, by the governor, and that's what he came up with, civilization succeeds uh, barbarism. And uh, Governor Dewey at that time went to New York City for some meetings, and he uh, by chance ran into a lawyer friend of his from Milwaukee uh, that was quite a uh, guy that kind of just tells it like it is. And uh, he said, well, this is kind of what we're thinking about as a state motto. And his lawyer friend said, that is Stupid. Okay, Um, you probably didn't say that, but he said, wow, only a chancellor of a university can come up with that highfalutin, pompous Latin phrase, okay? Um, And so they sat down together on, uh, so legend has it, on the the steps of a bank uh, on Wall Street, and they came up with the phrase forward for Wisconsin. The motto of Wisconsin should be forward. Well, that same motto is what Peter is going to try to say to a church this morning. Forward. How can a this church that's struggling, that's going through some tough times from the inside, move forward? Specifically in its pursuit of holiness. And the question I want to ask you all this morning is this. How do we move forward in holiness? And then what does it look like? And why is it important? Again, how do we move forward in holiness? What does it look like? And why is it important? We're going to be looking at the book of Second Peter, starting in verse 3, to answer those questions. So follow along with me as I, as I read this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And I pray that um, it would be transformative in our lives. That we would know what it's like to move forward. In you. Uh, I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, uh, we went through the book of 1 Peter, so it just makes sense. Why not? Let's go to 2 Peter, right? Um, uh, But the transition is not as seamless as that, because um, I think 1 Peter and 2 Peter are are different. And uh, there is a lot of questions about 2 Peter, of uh, when it was written, who it was written to, and maybe where in Peter's life, or maybe written after his death um, by a secretary, uh, just when it was written in, in Peter's time. We knew a little bit more about First Peter, Second Peter, we know a little bit less. But what we can know th- is this, is that this is an audience that Peter is writing to that is dealing with a lot of false teachings from the inside. And it's happened after the time of First Peter, so it could conceivably be still the churches in Asia Minor. And now they've gone through the persecution and the struggles, they've become more established churches, but uh, there has been become a problem from the inside. And a lot of the problem stems from uh, a doubt. And the doubt is this: Will God come back? Will he return? And there are doubts among the people in the church that he will. And I kind of line of thinking or philosophy that started to infiltrate the church is called an an Epicureanism. And there, the Epicureans who were around in that time in the Roman Empire did doubt that Christ would return or that God would come back. And second is that they even doubted that God intervenes in the world, that there is providence, that um, he is working within the framework that we are in now kind of a deistic view of that time. And because of that, many people that started doubting God might never come back and He's really not involved in the world today, inside the church, they were just living the way they wanted to. If God's not there, then I can live a life that I want to. He's he's not involved, so I can be licentious, I can sin, I can do whatever I would like. And because of that, Peter is responding. I do think, uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent. I hope you will allow me to do that. Uh, I do think that we are kind of in the same place in our community in the Fox Valley, Um, that we have these doubts that kind of infiltrate inside the church or inside of um, the Christian community. And I'd like to say that uh, in our area we've been inculcated or, um, sorry, inculcated, inoculated by Christianity. Inoculated by Christianity. What I mean by it is this. That many people that live in northeastern Wisconsin grew up in the church. Um, they know the right language or the things to say. They know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> okay, I had a boss that... Um, Uh, thought that to save on uh, calling an electrician and wiring our offices, um, that he knew enough about electric wiring that he could do it himself. Um, And uh, you can just know what happened when the boss did his own wiring of uh, electrical outlets and uh, what happened over time. Um, There might have been a small fire at one point in time. Um, So what I'm saying is that when you know enough to be dangerous about Christianity – it allows you to say, oh, yeah, I am still a Christian. I'm still in. But you doubt if even Christ is the only way. You have doubt to say, you know, maybe science has disproved faith. Or maybe doubt to say, you know, how can I even believe that this thing is reliable? And I think those doubts many times go unchecked in our community, and maybe even with you. And so I want to address one of those this morning quickly in my tangent. And it is, can I take this as being reliable? Because, you know, at Emmaus Road, we go through the Bible. And if you're a person that says, well, I don't know if the Bible is even reliable or true, you might be like, "Uh, why should I even listen to what's being said on Sunday mornings? Why don't you just tell good stories, you know, or fun anecdotes or how to live a fun moral life? Why do you have to go to this? And I want to answer that quickly. Um, many people that I've talked to, actually, we just had this conversation at Theology on Tap, is um, they think, you know, the Bible is like a big game of telephone, right? You know, you tell it to one person, and then it goes down the line, and what happens at the end, right? You get some crazy message at the end. The same way, Jesus said something, then it got written down in greek and then it went to latin and then it went to german and then it went to king's english then it went to english and now we have the message right you know <laughs> so i mean it just it's like a giant tele- game of telephone we don't even have close to what jesus actually said so we don't have close to what jesus said we can just pick and choose what we like or what was said in the New Testament of things that might apply and might not, because we don't really have what's true and reliable. Um, there's a famous book uh, called Misquoting Jesus. It's um, written by a University of North Carolina New Testament professor, and it's a New York Times, like I said, New York Times bestseller, and uh, did really well and from 2007 is when it came out. And his argument is this, the same thing, giant game of telephone. And uh, he really wants to dissuade evangelicals, or Christians, I believe the Bible is reliable, from that position. And the argument that he makes is this, that do you know that there are 400,000 textual variants in the New Testament? What he's saying is 400,000 changes in the New Testament from original manuscripts to, you know, later on. So... He's like, if there's 400,000 changes, how can you take this as being reliable? This is his major thesis. But there's one thing that he kind of misses, and I'm going to get to what he has to say in his footnotes at the end. But I think he knows, let's take Plato's Republic, okay? Plato's Republic, we have seven of the kind of original manuscripts uh, to um, 1000 AD, okay? Seven of kind of what people like to say, maybe some originals. But the earliest uh, we have it is 900 A.D., the earliest manuscript, when Plato's Republic was written in 400 B.C. So what is that? 1,300-year difference between when it was written and what we have, and we have seven. Okay, seven to 1,000 A.D. of Plato's Republic. The Bible, we have manuscripts that were just 50 to 100 years after the completion of the New Testament. And we have 25,000 full manuscripts from that time all the way to the printing press. 25,000 manuscripts. And people say, well, there's this huge gap, right, between you know the Middle Ages and when it was written early on. No, there are actually 110 full New Testament manuscripts from the second and third century. So when this author of misquoting Jesus says there's 400,000 textual variants, he is using those 25,000 manuscripts. So that comes down to 16 changes per book. And what are the variants? Uh, If you've ever studied the New Testament Greek, the variants are a difference between an omega and an omicron, an O and an omega script. That would be one variant. Okay? So that's the kind of changes that we're seeing. And at the end of his book, he had to write this in because he had so much protest. He writes this in his footnote. He says this. He says, No orthodox doctrine or ethical practice of Christianity depends solely on any disputed wording. So he kind of puts it at the end of his book. But that's kind of the gist. So my argument, I guess, this morning is this, is that we actually have what these authors said. Not in change, Well, change maybe the, the language in English, but this is as close as we can get. And we have some really good manuscripts to prove it, better than anything of ancient literature in the Bible. So could it actually be true? Could what it's telling us of how to live and what Jesus did and what the New Testament church experienced be right and how we're supposed to live a holy life? I just want you to chew on that, okay? I'm not making sure you have to believe that right now. But I would just encourage you, doubt your doubts. Rather than just saying, oh yeah, it's not really true, it's a giant game of telephone. Doubt your doubts. If you doubt whether this is true, Look and see. I think it is. So, how is that? Tangent enough? You okay, there's my tangent. Now I'm going to be back to Second Peter, okay? Because I think it's important to address that if I say this is how we should live a holy life. Okay? Boom. Back to it. Second Peter. If you like run-on sentences, like myself, and you don't like uh, punctuation and periods, this is a great part of the book, three through eleven, because this is huge run on sentences, first of all. But I think he divides it into three sections through verses three to eleven. Verse verses three to four says how we get godly. Verses five through seven answer what does it look like. And verses eight and eleven say, why does it matter? So let's look first at verses three through four. Okay? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, um, when I see the word uh, partakers of the divine nature, and I see words like knowledge, which means gnosis, Really, this thinking is sometimes like, what is he advocating? Is he advocating a gnosis kind of thinking that um, there's some hidden knowledge I have to gather to be able to be a good, holy person? Or is Peter even advocating that I can be divine myself? That doesn't sound like Christianity. Is he just way off? What is going on? Well, I think what is happening is this. Peter is using the language of Greek philosophy at that time and arguing against it. Using their language to say, no, this is not really what it is. And at first blush, you could say, okay, that's, that's what he's trying to say. But if we look and dive a little bit deeper, no. So some of the Greek thinking at that time was this, Gnosticism. And Gnosticism said this, there is this hidden knowledge, this spiritual realm, that uh, over time, if you tap into it, if you start to understand it, if you start to figure it out, then you can become more divine. Then you can become part of this spiritual world. And now Peter is saying, no, that is not what I am saying at all. That is not the Christian message at all. In fact... The way that you can tap into the power of holiness, the way that you can grow, is ultimately by just knowing Him, Jesus Christ. And if you know Him and what He has done, then you can partake in the things that He has given you. Not His omnipresence or omnipotence or any of those divine things of power that only God has but the moral attributes of God, his love, his character, his goodness. If you identify with Christ, if you know what he has done and trust in him and know that you've been called by him and chosen by him, you are then a partaker in these things. Uh, I think uh, what the New Testament writers are doing and what Jesus is advocating is a horrible business plan, okay? I, if you were going to create a religion, this is not a good way of doing it, okay? Because you need to hook people in to buy more stuff, okay? It works a little bit like this. Um, you want to grow in, in your religion or your understanding or be a better person, you need to buy book A, but then when you read book A, then read book B and book C. Make sure you come to this seminar that's a lot of money in Cancun, and we'll tell you what it really means to be holy. You know, that's kind of the line of thinking. And you know what? The disciples were trying to tell Jesus, that's how you should form this religion. Do you know that? <laughs> this is what the disciples did. It's really interesting. So the disciples were like, hey, we're in on the grassroots of this religious movement, and we're learning all this stuff. So, um, Jesus, we should be seated at your left and right, right? We are the kings of this religion, because we have learned all this great stuff you're teaching. But you know what Jesus does? <laughs> People that just have checked him out for the first time, like the poor or those that are lame, or those that anoint his feet with oil, or those that just say, I believe in you and have never even hung around all his teaching. Do you know what he says? These people got it right. Not you people that have hung around me and gone to all my seminars. Okay? Actually, the people that just say, I believe and trust in you. Jesus says, these are the people that will inherit the kingdom of God. These are the people that get it, disciples. These are the people that you should be looking at. You know, I think disciples might be saying, you know, I went to Samaria with you. I went to the Weekend to Remember conference in Samaria, right? So therefore, I deserve to know the full knowledge and gnosis of what it means to be holy. But instead, Jesus says this, the power to change, the power to be different doesn't come from reading the right book, going to the right seminar, being at the right place, the power comes ultimately from just knowing me. Guess what, people? Um, I could say, come back next week and I'll tell you more about how you can become holy. I'll tell you all of it right now. Believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done. And rely on his power and he will change you. I let the cat out of the bag. There it is. There's all my tricks. There's all my cards. That's all I've got. And it's probably what I'll say every single week. (laughs) Believe on the name Jesus Christ. Believe what He has done. That He is your Savior. That He has called you. That He has forgiven you. And if you believe that, that is the power to change. You don't have to buy my books. (laughs) You don't have to go to this conference or that conference. You just have to trust in that. Not a good business plan. But you know what? That is the message of the gospel. That anyone can tap in to that power. But here's the problem, and why you should keep on coming back, right? Now you're like, oh, I should... Why should I come back? Because we are so quickly easy to... We're easily confused on where the power comes from for us to change. We think the power comes from ourselves rather than from Christ. And I need to be reminded that daily. I need to be reminded that on Sunday morning. I need to be reminded that when I take communion, that the power comes from Christ and not from me. And the thing is, there's a great passage in Luke 7. Uh, if you have your Bible, I just—I don't usually jump around the Bible a lot, but I just want to go to Luke 7, because I think it it very well. And Luke 7 uh, talks about um, this kind of feast at a house, and uh, there's this guy, Simon, he's a Pharisee. He has all the knowledge. He's done it all right. And uh, he has Jesus over t- for a meal. And then this woman comes in, who has been known as a sinner. And she comes in, not really invited. Usually if you're not invited, you have to sit back in the back and listen. You can't sit at the table. But she goes to the table, and she weeps at Jesus' feet and starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears and ointment and her hair. And now there's this whispering among these guys that are around the table, Does Jesus know who this lady is? And this is what Jesus does and responds, knowing their hearts. He says this. He tells an illustration. He says, Who would love me more? There were two people that had a great debt. One had A huge debt. One had a smaller debt. And the person they owned the debt to said, your debt is forgiven to both of them. Which one of these two individuals would love that person more? And Simon says, the Pharisee, the person that was forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, you got it. But you know what? Even you that was forgiven supposedly the smaller debt, You didn't even give me something to wash my feet when I came in. You didn't even pour oil on my head. And she gave her very tears and put oil all over me in my feet. You did not do this or that. But she gave all of herself. You see, she will be forgiven. And I want to make this point about power source and where it comes from. Verse 5, looking back at Second Peter. Verse 5 says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement. For this very reason. So he is saying, for all that has happened... All that has occurred, what God has done, what Jesus has provided, His very gifts, His very self, His very freedom, that you would be freed from sinful desires and be able to follow Him, this very power, because He has given this to you, you shall then strive to work out your holiness. Because He has done this, you should work because of your gratitude of what He has done. You see, the woman that anointed Jesus, she said, I need you, Jesus. You have forgiven me all these things, and I will respond in that by giving my very life, this oil, my tears, all I am to worship you. And you see, Simon did not do that because he didn't even trust that Jesus did that much for him. J.C. Ryle says it really well in the 19th century an Anglican bishop. He says this, The man whose soul is growing feels his own sinfulness and unworthiness more every year. The nearer he draws to God and the more he sees of God's holiness and perfection, the more thoroughly is he sensible to his own imperfections. Do you see the more that we see the holiness of God and how different He is The more we will see how far away we are. But in the midst of that, the greater that Christ grows in us. Because we need Him. And that is the motivation. That is the power source for change. And then he says, because of that, you should then be striving. You should then be moving forward in that power source. To change and be, become more and more holy, knowing that you're not there. And he gives a list. And this list is, is great. He gives eight things about faith and virtue and then knowledge and self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Now, I agree with many commentators and much of what has been written in Greek literature at that time, with these kind of lists, it's not building on each other to say, okay, first you've got to conquer virtue, and then when you get virtue, you get knowledge, and then when you get knowledge, you get self-control. No, I don't think it's working like that. I think you can have love... And then uh, you didn't have to even go, you could even skip the step of steadfastness. So my thing is, it, these are all virtues that we should have, and they come at different points in time. But I think what is key is the first one and the last one, faith and love. Faith is what starts it, like I said, faith in what God has done. And then the greatest example of what that faith would look like is how we love and treat others so the first, the beginning and the end are good points of showing um, what to do. Now, uh, I want to comment on this quickly. C.S. Lewis comments on it, and another church leader that I was recently listening to comments on it, on it that when you want to identify um, progress or moving forward in the church, how do you identify it with individuals? How do you gauge C.S. Lewis says when people come into the church, they start at different points, right? A big um, thing that people accuse the church of is, look at that person. Look how hypocritical they are or look at their lifestyle. And Lewis says this, you don't even know where they started, do you? They could have been a lot worse. And maybe Christ has changed them. But it can also work in the other way. Someone might be really good and virtuous and coming to church, but they might not have been changing at all. And I'm, I'm yelling, I don't want to yell, but I want to argue this. I want to argue, this is what we can judge as a church. We cannot judge whether someone is saying, okay, their value is how holy they are, how close they are to heaven or godliness. Instead, how we should be judging is how much someone is striving and pushing forward in where they are at. How much they are relying on Christ to change them. We don't judge them in how they look. We judge them in what Piper said, how they stroke. How they push forward. How they strive. I would say the same thing in May's Road. That we would be a church... No matter where someone is on that trajectory of loving and being peaceful or being steadfast, we would judge them in how they're relying upon Jesus and stroking and striving and moving forward, that God would change them. Well, how are you doing? How are you doing on these virtues? Are you pushing forward? Are you saying, look, God has given me so much He has died for me. He's given me his life. He's given me all of these great things. And now I'm going to live in it. Are you just content in where you are, Christian? I've been a Christian for 10, 15, 20 years. I'm doing good. How about self control? I'm just going to give some examples. Do you say no to television? To the internet? Do you say no to your addictions? So that you can be around your family. How about steadfastness? steadfastness? Are you moving forward with the problems of balancing a budget? Being a reliable person? Being someone that follows through. Even when the money is tight. Even when it's a hard time in life. That you are a person that is steadfast. How about godliness? What would your spouse say? (laughs) What would your best friend say? Oh, yeah, the words that come out of my spouse's mouth, they are godly all the time. What they say to me is just full of freshness and love and piety. How about brotherly affection and love? How are you doing in loving the person you most dislike? What do you say about that person in your head? <laughs> How do you treat them? How are you doing in striving and moving forward in your brotherly affection and love? You guys all do it okay? You guys arrived? Have you arrived at holiness? Push forward. Strive. Rely on the power source of Christ knowing that he will sanctify you and change you. And you have a long ways to go. But there is one that has given you all things through him. His righteousness is at your fingertips. It is in yourself. Um, You know, I think it's easy to make excuses. To be like, "Uh, you know, I'm fine and where I am. And I pray that you would not make excuses of these lists that I just made. But instead, you would not be satisfied at where you are, but you would move forward. Well, why does this matter? The last one, verses, uh, verses 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are having these things, the fruit, these bearing of good things comes from it. And if you are not striving, you are not pushing forward, then there is not this fruit. Kevin DeYoung, a a preacher that I like a lot, says this. He says, you know, in my church, if I had to choose between two things, between having a gifted church and a church um, full, a gifted church with people that are unfruitful, meaning they don't abide in those patience, steadfastness, love, joy, or a church where I had people that had fruit and really poor gifts, you know, the ability to do things, I'm going to choose the latter. <laughs> I'm going to choose the church that is not very gifted, but people have love and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness. Do you know why? Because even if you have a really, really gifted church, and you have people with a lot of talents, if they don't have the fruits of the Spirit... They don't go very far in their talents, do they? Because once they start using their talents and someone makes them upset or it doesn't go the way they want to, they say, oh, forget that. <laughs> I'm done using my gifts here. I mean, you, gotta ha- you could have had all this, but no longer. But when you work with people that are full of patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, even if they don't have great gifts, they will serve of themselves and they will keep doing it no matter what comes down whether it's difficult or hard, or whether there's relationship difficulties, or whether there's pressing with the church, that they can still be able to do it in the midst of that. I will reiterate, Kevin DeYoung, I'd rather have a church that is full of people that have no talent whatsoever, but show the fruit of God, rather than a church that has a bunch of talents and gifts that has no fruit. I hope you don't hear me saying that a wrote has no talent and gifts. Yes, okay? We do. But I think let's strive and work forward on the other things, not just those. So, one way is a matter? Because we can be unfruitful if we don't strive and push forward. Second, we can do this. Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What happens is when you don't strive for when you don't see the holiness of God, you don't see His completed work and what He has done, you only see what is right before you. I talked about this, about this last week. It comes out in anxiety. It comes out in worry. It comes out of, um, I'm just paralyzed. But if you have this idea that you can be carefree that you know that God will provide for you, that He is there for you, working for you. The power is within you. You can see the completed work and not just what is right before you. And if that is the case, then you can live with whatever comes your way and say, God, you are faithful and good. I can trust in you and I can look at what the end goal is, no matter what's happening to me in the midst of right now. And uh, <clears throat> I was going to say, many of us have conversion stories uh, that were maybe a while ago. And when we came to know Jesus for the first time, um, it was freeing. I don't know if you remember that experience. It was freeing. It's like, man, I'm alive. I've been changed. I, I have no worries. This is amazing. What is really sad, I think, is that many people, the highlight of their Christian life was then, rather than 10, 15 years later. In fact, that truth should be growing that you should be living in that freedom more and more and more as you grow in Christ. Going back to that moment saying, "You know what? I can live in that now. He has given me that now." So like this, nearsighted, forgetting what happened in the past that you were cleansed from your sins. And lastly, is this. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Do you know why you should strive in holiness? Do you know why you should push forward? Because it shows that something has changed in your life. That the Holy Spirit has come in you so that you can be moldable. That you are teachable. That you are a person that has been called by God to a new life. If you are not striving forward, if you are not pushing, it might show that God is not doing a work upon you at all. That's not my words. That's these words. And that's encouragement to you. I hope that's encouragement. If you are struggling with sin... That shows that something is happening in your life. You know, I'm less worried about the person um, that is, uh, you know, dealing with a harsh sin, but struggling through it, than a person that's just kind of content in life. Because I can see with that person that the Spirit is actually working upon them. Okay. Okay. Some of you, you know, you need an illustration or something to show it, and I want to try to tie it up the best I can at the end. If you didn't listen to anything, hopefully maybe you listen to this because you like movies, because I like movies. It's a 25-year anniversary of Field of Dreams. One of my favorite movies of all time. I love Field of Dreams. And uh, you know, here's Ray and out. You know, he's a discontent man, right? You know, UC Berkeley. Now he's got a farm. He's always trying to find meaning in life. Oh, now I'll be a farmer or whatever. So here he is, and he hears this voice. If you build it, they will come. A calling, right? And this calling changes Ray Kinsella, doesn't it? He says, okay, uh, something, someone thinks I'm special, and he something has something for me to do. I'm going to do some crazy stuff. And he does, doesn't he? Does he push forward? Does he strive? You better believe it. He plows under the best crop in his field and builds a baseball field. Because the voice says he should. And also he, says, he decides he's going to leave and go to um, uh, to out of the state to go capture this writer and kidnap him and bring him back to the baseball field. He does some crazy stuff. And then at the end, it, it kind of comes to fruition, doesn't it? How did he do all this crazy stuff? What was the meaning behind it? Where can his discontentment actually find contentment? If you're a guy, I mean, sorry, I don't cry a lot of movies. That's a movie I cry at, right? Just at the end. I'm just like, if you ever play catch with your dad, you just you just weep at the end, right? It's because at the end there's this twist. See, Ray thought Shoeless Joe Jackson. Um, was the one that would come if he built this field. But then, the voice of Sheila Joe Jackson, this baseball player, says, if you build it, he will come. And who comes out? But his dad, who he had this torn relationship with. And then what happens at the end, of this, We get really weepy. You, just, you can hear it in Kevin Costner's voice at the end. Dad, do you want to play catch? Right? Boom! God has called you. He said, do crazy things for me. But the thing is, if you do, you will find your contentment ultimately in me. Because you are running after the source of your power, which is myself. So that you can say to God, God, Jesus, it's like catch. Because you're in relationship with him. And that is what strives and tells you to move forward in that holiness. So verse 11 would ring true in your life. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that one day we will be with him and all striving, all pushing forward will be gone because we will be with our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and you've called us to live a life that is different and